rock with us, the junkyard empire. Yo, patriotism, it ain't about flag waving, it's about a mind state that'll fight enslavement. Improve society for the person adjacent. Complacent patience and a blind faith, y'all, will lead us all to a permanent downfall. The lack of resources makes it hard to survive. Some people getting desperate trying to stay alive. It's like racism, sexism, terrorism, inequity come from capitalism. And that can't exist in a democracy. If this was up to me, we would set our brain free from the insane right-wing chain gang system. Take alternative views. Get your minds out of prison. No matter race, creed, color, any religion, responsibility is to our legacy to revolt against this government and tyranny. You want freedom? Rock the empire, you want justice, rock the empire, you want equality, rock the empire, just throw your hands up, rock the empire. Give us 
And that was the track Rock the Empire by the band Junkyard Empire. Greetings and welcome to Howie 2020. This is an independent podcast on progressive politics inspired by Bernie Sanders, Howie Hawkins, Angela Walker, progressive and radical activism in the Green Party. This podcast is completely independent of any candidate, party, PAC, or political organization. You can follow on Twitter at Howie underscore 2020. You can also find out more about Howie 2020 and Bernie 2020. You can check out all the back episodes at Bernie-2020.com. On that site, you'll also find a link to send me a message and some links to make a donation. It's about a week before November 3rd here in the U.S. and I guess anywhere in the world that's using this calendar. Uh, November 3rd here in the U.S. is our election day in 2020. And um, many of you have already voted. The number of people who have voted by mail or uh, participated in early voting is tremendous. Uh, The last number that I saw was 25 million. I'm sure that is well out of date by the time you're listening. If you haven't already voted, then you've likely already decided whom you're going to vote for in person on November 3rd or earlier. Or you've decided that you're not going to vote. All of which are valid positions to take in in my opinion as long as you undertake them with uh with thought and deliberation but if you've decided not to vote i'd like you to reconsider and i i'm not here to try to convince you to vote for one of the major party candidates but to encourage you to think outside of that box think outside of those uh those guardrails that our system has built to keep things in line and to control the outcomes by uh convincing the people that only one of two choices matter while it's certainly true that there is only the likelihood of winning with one of those two major party choices, voting for a third party matters because there's a lot more at stake for a third party. In many places, there are thresholds those parties need to attain to either remain on ballots or to obtain ballot lines in future elections and that matters a great deal i mean that disproportionately matters to those third parties and obviously based on on my political outlook and views i think the best candidates out there as is obvious by the name of this podcast are howie hawkins and angela walker So if you had decided that you wouldn't vote, I think you should uh, consider voting for 
Howie Hawkins and Angela Walker. If you don't feel you know enough about Howie Hawkins and Angela Walker's positions, go to HowieHawkins.us to learn more. First up, this episode is a story written by Thomas Meisenhelder, and this is published at CommonDreams.org. Declining American hegemony could be a good thing. Recently, some of the talking heads on the news have been worrying about the demise of U.S. global hegemony. We are told that the American empire is in decline and our influence and status around the world are falling. We are told that this bodes poorly for both the people of the United States and the rest of the world. That is not how I see it. While I tend to agree that the United States is losing its hegemony, I believe that all of us in the U.S. and elsewhere will be better off if the United States is no longer the, quote, leader of the world. Our decline has been going on since the time of Richard Nixon, through Carter, the Bushes, Clinton, Obama, and has accelerated under Trump. The president's favoritism for the white and the rich, his erratic destruction of the administrative and diplomatic state, his complete inability to address COVID-19, his rejection of reason, science, and expertise, his cultural ignorance, his meanness and cruelty, his selfish disregard for others, nations, and peoples, all have underscored and advanced our national decline. We have been taught to think that our country's position in the world stems in part from our status as the world's one true democracy. But it is now very clear that that is not the case. Especially since Citizens United, political power in this country, has prioritized wealth and those who have it. And I would argue it happened long before then. It just may be a bit more obvious and a bit sharper division now than at some other times in our history. Although clearly, when you had plantation owners and landowners and industrialists and you had slaves, that uh, division was about as sharp as it could be. The United States is now a country, quote, of the rich, by the rich, and for the rich. We have tax laws that favor capital over income. We have civil and criminal justice systems that protect property more than people. Our public institutions routinely criminalize immigrants, the poor, and people of color. Our national elections are not decided by the popular vote, but instead by an archaic process based on unrepresentative group called the Electoral College. Our laws and policies reflect the interests of the wealthy as communicated to the wealthy legislators by the lobbyists of big business. We have voting laws that make it a burden to vote for many. As a result, too often public policy does not reflect the opinions or interests of the majority. If it did, 
we would be like other developed countries and adopt national health care, paid parental leave, stronger controls on guns and weapons, free higher education, reproductive rights, and a higher minimum wage. If we are honest with ourselves, we must admit that there are many more democratic nations in the world today. Their influence inevitably rises as ours falls, and this is a good thing for everyone. Much of the U.S. hegemony has stemmed from the fact that the United States is surely the most heavily armed and most militarily active country in the world. The national myth is that we use military force reluctantly and only when it is necessary to ensure human rights, peace, and security. But let's look at the record. Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, Indonesia, Cuba, Grenada, Dominican Republic, Chile, Central America, Libya, Congo, Iran, Iraq, Panama, Afghanistan. Were any of these places made better as a consequence of our covert and overt actions? We spend more on weapons of war than any other country in the world. Researchers at Brown University have found that since the horror of 9-11, the so-called, quote, war on terrorism, has killed 800,000, displaced 37 million, and cost taxpayers $6.4 trillion. We are told that the United States is the greatest, most productive, and fairest economy in the world. It isn't. Over the last several years, our share of world production has declined significantly. Increasingly, our economy is characterized by wide inequalities, environmental destruction, and decreasing life chances for the many. The earnings ratio between CEOs and their employees has widened dramatically. Bosses now earn as much as 400 times the incomes of their employees. Ordinary Americans no longer believe that future generations will have more comfortable lives than current ones. People of color in the United States face significant economic damage just because of their heritage and ethnicity. President Trump did not create this situation, but he is making it worse. His administration's mishandling of COVID has driven down the lives of ordinary Americans. Unemployment is up. Incomes are down, mass evictions are looming, GDP has collapsed, and all this doubly true for persons of color. The only folks doing well are a few tech bosses and those who live off the stock market. In addition, the American economy is not sustainable environmentally. Since we no longer can claim any kind of real commitment to environmental protection, we cannot even pretend to be an international leader in this area. Our tax system is notoriously unfair and confusing. It favors the wealthy over the middle and working classes. It favors growth over maintenance and endurance. It favors corporations over families. We rescue banks from their unwise and sometimes criminal investments while allowing health care expenses to bankrupt ordinary people who already live without paid medical or parental leave, decent vacations, or old-age pensions, 
all commonplaces and developed in developing nations around the world. Americans live shorter and less healthy lives than people do in most developed nations. Our schools are nowhere near the best in the world, and many schools in poor and working-class areas are so underfunded and under-resourced that they look more like tenements than campuses. They test and segregate more than they build and educate. Classes are large, standardized testing proliferates, teachers are underpaid, armed cops patrol the halls, and facilities are crumbling. Simply put, we have nothing to teach the rest of the world about how to build an economy that serves the people. Many nations already know how to do it, and hopefully, as we decline, they will become ready international examples of, quote, best practices. We have long believed we are the proverbial city on the hill, a place that is home to a life so rewarding that it is a model for all. That emperor, too, has no clothes. A supposed nation of immigrants, we do not welcome newcomers. Instead, we attempt to deter migrants through practices of harassment, detention, and family separation. The coronavirus and the continuing trauma of police brutality have revealed that our society and its communities are unhealthy. Too often, residents have no trust in their government and see the police and other agencies as the agents of an occupying power. And people around the world recognize that we are a violent nation. Gun violence rages, and mass shootings in schools, churches, nightclubs, and movie theaters have become distressingly common. Deadly police repression and practices of mass incarceration impact our communities, particularly neighborhoods of color. Guns and violence even characterize our entertainment media, which we export around the globe. Hollywood gets rich by displaying false and elaborately decorated images of fear, violence, and anger. What does such an unreflectively violent place have to teach the rest of the world? The cultural spread of a violent breed of radical individualism and the acceptance of deep inequalities are destroying the foundations of our society. Looking out for number one cannot form the basis of a livable, functioning community. Norms of reciprocity and equity suffer when people must struggle against each other to fulfill even the most basic needs such as food, clothing, housing, and medical care. While many countries define the collective provision of basic needs as the necessary social infrastructure of a good society, we worry about something called the nanny state. The few such programs we do have are inefficient and inadequate by design, rife with unnecessary administrative costs, bureaucratic means testing, and minimal resources. In many if not most, developed nations. Ordinary people earn better wages, have better schools, live healthier lives, and are more secure and comfortable in communities where they feel respected, valued, and cared for. So it is very likely that the declining global hegemony of the United States will be an opportunity to build better lives everywhere.
if the new global role models are places like Denmark, Norway, or Costa Rica. Surely the world will be headed towards fewer threats to peace, less military spending, fewer attacks on local democracies, more concern for human rights, less environmental destruction, more environmental protection, and more democracy. And if America uses this opportunity to change what we spend on and how we care for each other, life will be better here at home, too. But as always, as empire and hegemony fall, there are many struggling to maintain that status quo and to create and build up new enemies to distract us and support their continued social and economic model. Here's a piece written by Sarah Lazar, published at InTheseTimes.com. How bipartisan anti-China rhetoric is being used to increase U.S. military spending. With little public attention or debate, the call for greater confrontation with China is being used by both Republicans and Democrats to justify funneling billions more in spending towards the Pentagon's budget and pursue military buildup across the Asia-Pacific region. The congressional push to beef up the 2021 National Defense Authorization Act, NDAA, which determines the annual budget of the Department of Defense, is raising concern among some anti-war advocates who oppose efforts to further militarize U.S. society by casting China as America's number one enemy. The Senate version of the NDAA, which passed on July 23, in a vote of 86 to 14, allocates $6 billion to the, quote, Pacific Deterrence Initiative over the course of two years, $1.4 billion in 2021, $5.5 billion in 2022. According to Lindsay Koshgarian, the program director of the National Priorities Project and an expert in military budgets. The initiative is intended to, quote, increase the lethality of the joint force in the Indo-Pacific region, according to the NDAA by fortifying U.S. allies and partners in the region, and improving U.S. military capabilities, including through procurement and fielding of long-range precision strike systems. A statement from the Senate Armed Services Committee, released in June, calls the initiative, quote, a strong signal to the Chinese Communist Party that America is deeply committed to defending our interests in the Indo-Pacific. The House, meanwhile, passed its own anti-China initiative in its version of the NDAA, which was approved on July 21 by a vote of 295 to 125. The Indo-Pacific Reassurance Initiative allocates $3.6 billion for 2021, while the NDAA does not specify an amount for 2022. It does say that the Department of Defense should make a plan for, quote, future budget requests. And according to Koshgarian, who also verified these numbers, quote, It's safe to assume that it would continue at a similar or higher level. 
She adds that the NDAA specifies that the initiative should come in at a minimum of $3.6 billion, so the final amount could come in higher if other, more flexible funds are also dedicated to this initiative. The House initiative is aimed at, quote, optimizing the presence of United States armed forces in the region, improving military infrastructure, and strengthening and maintaining bilateral and multilateral military exercises and training with U.S. allies, according to the House NDAA, whose anti-China proposals were bipartisan. The House version mirrors a proposal put forward in June by Representative Adam Smith, Democrat, chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, who called for a $3.58 billion Indo-Pacific Reassurance Initiative, which he said should optimize the presence of U.S. forces in the region and build the defense and security capabilities, capacity, and cooperation of allies and partner nations. Smith, a significant recipient of money from defense industry PACs, has a hawkish record, and in July voted against an amendment to cut the U.S. military budget by 10% and put that money towards coronavirus relief and other social programs. Smith's proposal closely resembles legislation drafted by Representative Mac Thornberry, Republican, the ranking Republican on the House Armed Services Committee, to create an Indo-Pacific deterrence initiative to the tune of $6 billion. When unveiling that legislation in April, Thornberry, the House's top recipient of funding from defense industry PACs and individuals during the 2016 election cycle, underscored its bipartisan support. Quote, Senior officials from both parties, military commanders and international security experts, have told us for years that the Indo-Pacific must be this country's priority theater, Thornberry said at the time. The Senate and House versions of the NDAA, both of which allocate a whopping $740.5 billion for the 2021 military budget, must next be reconciled, something that likely will not happen until after the November 3 presidential election. But given that anti-China initiatives are included in both versions, the final is all but certain to include billions more for U.S. troop deployments, military infrastructure, exercises, weapons buildup, and support for proxy forces in the region. According to Joseph Gerson, executive director of the Campaign for Peace, Disarmament, and Common Security the American Friends Service Committee, quote, The confrontation across the board with China is currently the driving force behind military spending. The implications extend far beyond the immediate language of the bills. Quote, Increasingly, it's not just about the money that's very specifically allocated for that region, but also everything in that part of the world is going to be increasingly justified said Koshgarian. Even things we already have our bases in, Japan and South Korea, and certainly there's a lot of focus on the South China Sea. It's all going to be increasingly justified by the focus on China. And indeed, both House and Senate versions of the NDAA include measures that make it harder for the United States to withdraw troops from South Korea, despite vociferous opposition in that country to the U.S. military's presence. Both versions include language that prohibits using using NDAA funds to reduce the U.S. troop presence below 28,500 unless the reduction is proven 
to be in the U.S. national security interests. Tobita Chow, the director of Justice is Global, which calls itself a grassroots movement, warns that as the U.S.-China conflict continues to escalate, it is going to increase the dangers for everyone who's caught in between. That includes the Korean Peninsula, Taiwan, and Southeast Asia. He adds that he is also concerned about Africa, where the U.S. is using China's economic activities to justify expanding its own military presence. Whoever is in the White House, says Chow, this creates really dangerous pressures. Beyond direct military buildup, there are signs that the final NDAA could also include initiatives aimed at fortifying U.S. intelligence agencies and blaming China for the COVID-19 crisis. The Senate version of the bill says it's a policy of the United States, quote, to counter the Chinese Communist Party's efforts to spread disinformation in the People's Republic of China and beyond with respect to the response of the Chinese Communist Party to COVID-19. It also includes a plan for the FBI to, quote, increase public awareness and detection of influence activities by the government of the People's Republic of China. While both versions of the NDAA leave the infrastructure of the so-called War on Terror intact, they each signal a shift towards prioritizing opposition to China primarily, as well as Russia. Quote, One of the things that's so dangerous about this is that, for the most part, there's pretty unquestioned bipartisan agreement that these are legitimate goals, says Koshgarian. There is bipartisan agreement that we need huge Pentagon budgets, and we should justify them by having common enemies. There is an agreement that China is going to be this common enemy. And the story goes on a little further with a little bit more detail, but I think for this episode, we'll leave it there and move on to another part of the world. A couple of stories about Bolivia, where our global influence a year ago was shown a bit heavily, but the pushback and fight against that influence had recent gains in the Bolivian elections last week. First up is an interview with Evo Morales. This is by Dennis Rogatyuk and Bruno Sommer Catalan and is published at tribunemag.co.uk. Evo Morales's fate after last November's military coup in Bolivia follows the same dark pattern as that of many left-wing progressive, and anti-imperialist leaders in the region. Parallels have been drawn with the coup against Chile's Salvador Allende in September 1973, the attempted military uprising against Hugo Chavez in Venezuela in April 2002, and the Ecuadorian police's bid to oust Rafael Correa in September 2010. With Morales now in exile in Argentina, He has also been compared to that country's leader, Juan Domingo Perón, after the September 1955 takeover by an ultra-conservative faction of the army. The military dictatorship implemented a total ban on the Peronista movement, yet the exiled Perón continued to bear enormous influence 
Due to the base he had built through the decade of radical social change and independent foreign policy he pursued under his presidency. Though his name was banned, the Peronist movement remained active, and after its candidate Hector Campora's March 1973 election victory, Peron was finally allowed to return. Today, Evo Morales and the Movement for Socialism, or MAS, find themselves in a rather similar similar situation. The period since the military coup in November has been marked by repression, massacres of dozens of trade unionists and indigenous activists, and attempts to ban MAS from standing in today's presidential election. This is combined with an ongoing campaign of media manipulation and fake news designed to smear 14 years of socialist government. Despite this, MAS remains Bolivia's strongest political force, with the latest polls indicating that its Luis Arce Catacora and David Chocohuanca should win election in the first round. Yet a free and fair contest is seen as unlikely, given the continual interference from the Organization of American States, OAS, and its secretary, Luis Almagro. Ahead of the vote, Dennis Rogutuk and Bruno Sommer sat down with ousted President Morales to discuss his record as a trade unionist and as head of state, his experience of the coup, and what Moss can do if and when it returns to government. During the Cochabamba Water War of 1999-2000, a mass revolt against water privatization, you were a union leader resisting the neoliberal government of Jorge Tuto Caroga. How can you compare the struggle of those years with the current resistance in the Cochabamba tropics? Evo Morales It is worth mentioning the group of young peasant and indigenous leaders active since the end of the 1980s and early 1990s, of which I was a part. We asked ourselves, how long are we going to be ruled from above or from outside? How long would plans and policies keep coming from the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank? And when are Bolivians going to govern ourselves? Bolivia always has had forms of social power, union power, communal power from below, but when we asked how we could nationalize our natural resources and basic services on the basis of this communal or social power, we could not do so. So it was important to promote a political instrument, yes, on the basis of the peasant movement of the tropics, but above all, from Quechua's Aymara's the more than 30 indigenous nationalities. We proposed a political instrument of liberation of the people, for the people, and with a program of the people. At this point, we had to break with the capitalist system. In this system, the social movements are called terrorists, and trade unions aren't meant to be involved in politics. But we said we have political rights, and we cannot just be trade unionists only concerned with labor demands. If we want deep transformations, it is important also to produce deep transformations in the state structures. To a certain extent, we had problems with the workers who insisted on their trade union independence and non-political stance. Then the governments of Hugo Bonzer and Tuto Caroga came along. 
They privatized Bolivia's electricity and telecommunications networks, while our natural resources, such as gas, were handed over to transnational companies. Several times I went to negotiate with the national leaders of the COB, Bolivian Workers' Center, the main trade union federation, as well as the peasant, peasant confederations. And in the different negotiations with neoliberal governments, we always put the subject of nationalization on the table. Our argument was that when the gas was underground, it belonged to Bolivians, but when it came above ground, it was no longer Bolivian. The unconstitutional contracts that were signed said literally that the owner acquires the property right at the wellhead. And who is the owner? The transnational company. And the interviewer asks, In the 2002 presidential elections, you were defeated by Gonzalo Goni Sanchez de Lozada after a campaign of falsehoods, fear, and intimidation against you and Mas. Today we are seeing something similar. What lessons for the present do you draw from this experience? In 1997, it was proposed to me that I should be the candidate for the presidency, and I was subject to a lot of defamation by the Sanchez de Lozada government. They said of me, quote, How can a drug dealer, a murderer, be president? Then I declined the candidacy, but in 2002 there was a consensus for me to run. I doubted that I could get a good vote. One international paper said that Moss could get 8%, and all the polls said 3 or 4%. Sanchez de Lozada allied himself with the Bolivian Libra movement, which before, in 1989, had grouped together sections of the left, the Social Democrats. This party was based on NGOs and used to receive money from Europe in particular. The U.S. Ambassador Jose Manuel Roach said, quote, Evo Morales is an Andean bin Laden, and the coca growers are the Taliban, so don't vote for him. The anti-imperialist people of Bolivia reacted against this. Why does the U.S. Ambassador accuse Evo Morales of being the Andean bin Laden? President Tuto Quiroga had to stay silent, though today he says that there is interference in Bolivia by Argentina and other countries. I said that Ambassador Roche was my best campaign manager for having made those comments, and the result for Moss was 20%. I want to be honest, till that moment, I was not so sure that I could ever be president. But from that point, I thought I could be. And now we really had to prepare ourselves. With a group of professionals, we began to develop a very serious and responsible program for the state, for the Bolivian people. The gas war is a popular revolt against the privatization of hydrocarbons in 2003 to 2005 were a real turning point, both for Bolivia and for yourself. It was then that we saw the power of the social organizations, mainly in the city of El Alto. How do you compare that historic moment with today, and what role do you think such movements will play in the process of restoring popular sovereignty? With these struggles, we could win some demands, but no structural changes. When I got to the Shapar in Cochabamba tropics, the indigenous peasant front proposed major changes in the negotiations over hydrocarbon. The neoliberal government's representatives responded saying, no, you are doing politics. Politics for you is a crime, a sin, and 
the politics of the peasant in the tropics is axe and machete, or in the Altiplano region, the pick and shovel. Then came the gas war, a fight concentrated in the city of El Alto. What was the underlying problem? Apart from the question of nationalization, we could not understand why our governments wanted to install a liquefied natural gas plant in Chilean territory, not state-owned facilities, but private ones, and from there send gas to California. We were lacking in gas, and they were sending it to the United States. But why not first supply Bolivians? The fight for nationalization was deepening, and there the people of El Alto were more than ever united in a single neighborhood council. Now they tell me it has two, even three, neighborhood councils. A weakness, in my opinion. But the most combative and the strongest are not only patriotic, but anti-imperialist neighborhood councils based on the Aymara Brotherhood. We are convinced that we are going to overcome all these problems with the people's struggle, with the struggle of the people of El Alto. You manage to nationalize the country's natural resources and create a stable and constantly growing economy. What do you recommend as key policies to solve the current economic crisis in Bolivia created by the coup government? First, an important fact of which people should be informed. At the moment we nationalized it in 2005, the annual income from oil was barely 3 billion Bolivianos. After we nationalized, by January 22, 2019, on the anniversary day of the plurinational state, we were left with 38 billion Bolivianos of oil rent. In 2005, they left us a GDP of $9.5 billion. By January last year, we left it at $42 billion. Imagine the importance of this change. Bolivia was the bottom country in South America for economic growth. But out of the 14 years that I was president, for six of them, Bolivia was first placed. When I went to international forums, summits, or to some inauguration, these presidents would ask me, Evo, this year, how much economic growth will there be? I told them 4 or 5%, and they asked me what I had done to achieve this. And I answered, we must nationalize our natural resources and basic services must be a human right. The privatizations are back again now. The Supreme Decree 4272, imposed by Janine Agnez's regime, of June 24 of this year, proposed a return to the past, reducing the state to dwarf size, as the International Monetary Fund wants. The state is not going to invest in public companies, and it will contribute less to the expansion of the productive apparatus for the benefit of the Bolivian people. The idea of this supreme decree is to return to the state functioning only as a regulator and not as an investor in national projects. The IMF's recipes are all there in this supreme decree, privatizing electricity, telecommunications, health, and education. The privatization of education has already begun, because this year they did not set aside a budget for the creation of new schools. On September 14, they began privatizing energy in Cochabamba. The attorney appointed by Añez resigned because that privatization decree was unconstitutional. Basic services are a human right and cannot be a private business. 
health cannot be a commodity, and education is so important for the emancipation of the people. So the people rise up in rejection of this. Unfortunately, Bolivia currently has two pandemics. The pandemic that kills us with the virus and paralyzes production through the quarantine, but also a government that paralyzes all public works and submits them to capitalist policies. Our task is to defend the nationalizations and deepen industrialization. That is the goal we must achieve so we can continue with economic growth. But first, we have to recover democracy and take back our country. And there is more to this interview. If you want to read the rest, go to tribune.co.uk and look for the interview by Dennis Rogatyuk and Bruno Sommer Catalan of Evo Morales, published on October 18. And that brings us to this piece by Jake Johnson, uh, published at commondreams.org. A year after former Bolivian President Evo Morales was ousted in a military coup that installed a brutal far-right regime, Morales' ally, Luis Arce, declared victory in the South American nation's high-stakes presidential election early Monday after exit polls showed the socialist candidate with a large advantage over his two main competitors. Quote, Democracy has won, Arce, who serves as Morales' finance minister, said in an address to the nation after one exit poll showed him leading the race with 52.4% of the vote and former President Carlos Mesa in a distant second with 31.5%. Right-wing candidate Luis Camacho, an ally of unelected interim president Janine Añez, won just 14.1% of the vote, according to the survey. The Washington Post reported that, quote, if the exit poll numbers are confirmed by the official count, which was being tabulated slowly late Sunday, it would be more than enough to avoid a November runoff and claim outright victory. Ars characterized his apparently decisive victory, which even Añez was forced to acknowledge, as a mandate to continue the policies of the Morales government, which lifted millions of Bolivians out of poverty and expanded the nation's economy. I think the Bolivian people want to retake the path we were on, Ars said on Monday. Twice postponed due to the coronavirus pandemic, Sunday's election was a do-over of last year's presidential contest, which was thrown into chaos after the U.S.-dominated Organization of American States, OAS, leveled baseless allegations of fraud by Morales, who was eventually forced to resign and flee the country under threat by Bolivia's military. The coup against Morales sparked a wave of indigenous-led protests that were violently suppressed by the Bolivian military and police forces, which were granted sweeping immunity from prosecution by the anti-indigenous Añez government. Quote, The OAS allegations were indeed the main political foundation of the coup that followed the October 20 election three weeks later, Mark Weisbrot, co-director of the Center for Economic and Policy Research, wrote last month. But they provided no evidence to support these allegations, 
because there wasn't any. This has since been established repeatedly by a slew of expert statistical studies. From exile in Argentina, Morales on Monday celebrated Ars's apparent victory as a, quote, great triumph of the people. Brothers and sisters, the will of the people has been asserted, Morales tweeted. This is an overwhelming victory. We are going to give dignity and liberty back to the people. Next up is a piece published at businessinsider.com, written by Hilary Brook. Christopher Hansen was five years old when he died from the coronavirus. Jamila Durian Emoni Barber was 17 and had been worrying over an unfinished school assignment. Kamora Lynam was a healthy nine-year-old girl. They are three of the more than 121 kids and teens under 21 years old who've died from the coronavirus so far across the U.S. They were also all black, representative of a disturbing deadly trend. According to a new report from the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, very few children who've gotten sick with the coronavirus have died. Of the 391,814 cases of COVID-19, as well as the rare infection linked to it, pediatric multisystem inflammatory syndrome, that the CDC recorded between February 12 and July 31 of this year, only 121, about 0.03%, were deadly. But among those 121 decedents, few were white. The CDC reported that just 17 of those recorded fatalities were in white children, compared with 35 deaths of black children and 54 Hispanic deaths. The data is horrifying, but not surprising to me, Dr. Uche Blackstock, founder of Advancing Health Equity, told Insider. Where you see marginalization and disadvantage, you're going to find coronavirus. The data doesn't match up with the demographics of the U.S. as a whole. White children comprise about 50% of the kids in the country, according to the Kids Count Data Center, but accounted for only 14% of the childhood COVID-19 deaths. Black children, meanwhile, make up 14% of that same population, but accounted for more than double their ratio in deaths, at 28.9%. The overrepresentation of Hispanic and Native communities in COVID deaths is even more stark. One of the key reasons the CDC suspects so many children of color are dying from the coronavirus is because they live in the same households as adults of color who are more likely to be essential workers and exposed to the virus on the job. Quote, Their risk of being infected is higher than white children, Blackstock said. Crowded living conditions, food and housing insecurity, wealth and educational gaps, and racial discrimination, as well as lack of access to care, all also likely play a role in the higher rates of death in black and brown children, the CDC report said. In other words, 
the deaths have nothing to do with the color of a child's skin. They're tied to systemic racism that puts their health at risk by subjecting them to different living conditions than their white counterparts. Those conditions extend outside of a child's household and into the neighborhoods that black and brown families disproportionately live in. In these areas, there tends to be worse air and toxic dumps that contribute to asthma, as well as food deserts and other environmental and societal setbacks that hurt their health over time. Not just lack of access to food, but lack of access to green space, lack of access even to health care and regular preventive care that could prevent worsening of these chronic conditions, Blackstock said. Children don't go untouched when we're talking about marginalization and disadvantage. Recent studies also show the redlining policies that have kept U.S. neighborhoods segregated by race for decades line up with higher rates of pre-existing conditions that can make COVID-19 harder to fight. In the UK, both black and Asian children are more likely to suffer from a rare but potentially deadly complication thought to be linked to to the coronavirus called pediatric multisystem inflammatory syndrome. Quote, There are disparities in how black patients and other patients of color are treated in terms of complaints being minimized, Blackstock said. Many of the children who've died from the coronavirus in the U.S., more than 75%, also had at least one underlying medical condition. The two most common were chronic lung disease and obesity, health issues that have been linked in study after study, with living in marginalized, disadvantaged communities. It's especially concerning, Blackstock said, as parents weigh how and when to send their kids back to school safely this fall. This is bringing up that really difficult, almost false choice that families have, where, you know, black and brown communities are the communities where there already are opportunity gaps in terms of education, she said. And if we keep school closed... We know that remote learning is not as effective as in person. But at the same time, these are the communities and children that are most at risk for being infected with coronavirus. Bottom line, of the many, many ways that racism kills, COVID-19 is one. And this piece is from In These Times, also republished at commondreams.org, written by Anna Bianca Roach. This crisis makes clear we need a four-day work week now. The pandemic inspired politicians and country leaders across the world to speak in favor of a reduced work week. New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern has brought it up as has Santa Marin, the Prime Minister of Finland. Germany's largest trade union, the Metalworkers Union, is pushing the idea hard, with support from the country's Federal Ministry of Labor and Social Affairs. The European Commission is considering a wage subsidy program to shorten workers' hours. According to a study by the Canadian Labor Economics Forum, low-income workers in Canada experience both the sharpest decrease in working hours and the sharpest increase. That's because the Canadian Emergency Response Benefit, CERB, a monthly stipend of 2,000 Canadian dollars, 
was available to anyone who lost work due to the pandemic and whose monthly earnings were now 1,000 Canadian dollars or less. But it didn't apply to anyone who voluntarily left their job. Among those who kept their jobs were essential workers, most of whom are paid paradoxically low wages. They saw their jobs become more demanding and more dangerous. For non-essential workers whose work shifted online, where their working hours did increase, this may have been mitigated by the decrease in commute time. Everyone in between, people whose pandemic-related job loss brought them under the $1,000 threshold, suddenly had more income and more time. Some actually saw an increase in income as a CERB amounts to more than a monthly wage at the federal minimum wage. Lee Gazan, a member of parliament in the province of Manitoba, has put forth a motion to convert the CERB into a universal basic income without cutting other social support networks. Politicians aren't alone in thinking about the benefits of shorter hours. Among the loudest proponents for cutting hours is a New Zealand hedge fund that trialed a four-day week and saw an increase in productivity. Other firms have seen similar results, especially in office settings. Employees working excessive hours are tired, stressed, and more vulnerable to mental illness or diseases. Working excessive hours also means we struggle to meet our own needs, like socializing, exercising, eating properly, or even having hobbies. As a result, workers commodify things they would otherwise do for fun, like caring for children or cooking dinner. They hire migrant workers for paltry wages or buy ready-made dinners assembled by underpaid factory workers. A radical shorter work week goes further than asking whether we can cut hours without cutting profits. It challenges the central role of our work in our lives and asks what life could look like if the benefits of industrialization were redistributed rather than accumulated at the top. When the pandemic hit, Erin Sokol lost her job as a private chef in Toronto. She gave herself a day off and then started baking full-time. She made bread for people whose livelihoods were affected by the crisis, delivering up to 20 loaves across the city several times a week. This helped support a heavily overburdened food security system and also helped her escape the unattainable standards set by her industry that wore on her physical and mental health. Astrid Moore, a student at McGill University, also started baking. She learned how to make croissants and started selling them to give the proceeds to food banks in the city. Both Moore and Sokol found themselves with time on their hands as the pandemic began. It's that leisure time that allowed them to reconsider the purpose of their work and build working habits that are healthier and more sustainable for them. Cooking at home is one example of what Autonomy, a UK-based think tank that studies work, calls low-carbon soft alternatives to consumerist behavior. Its 2019 report on the shorter work week found that reducing working hours would reduce carbon emissions and improve general societal welfare. It would reduce commute traffic and partly replace it with walking or biking, more low-carbon soft activities. Autonomy also lays out a transitional path that proposes a framework for companies to ensure that increased profit 
leads to better working conditions for employees. An example is the creation of a government organization that would ensure that technological innovation, like the creation of new machinery that makes production faster and easier, translates to better working conditions instead of mass layoffs and increased profit. Could we replace the whole food supply chain with home-baked bread? Unlikely. But we could reduce dependency on labor-intensive, high-energy products like microwave lasagna. Given that Americans waste up to 40% of food, we could further reduce industrial food production. Our cities could promote local food production like community-supported agriculture and urban farming. We could imagine a food production system that relies much less on industrialized agriculture. Factory farms whose working conditions and environmental impact have been under increased scrutiny during the COVID-19 pandemic could be replaced with smaller alternatives that are more friendly to workers and the environment. Food factory workers who also benefit from the shorter work week could work less and in better conditions to supplement the local supply chain as needed. That food system would also better resist crises like COVID-19 and improve food security for people who, under the current economy, can't always access food. Food production is the most tangible example of the benefit of a shorter work week, but there are countless others. By giving people more time to care for themselves and each other, a shorter work week policy would increase overall health in society and partially reduce the burden of healthcare workers. We'd need fewer desk workout gadgets, less coffee, and fewer medications to treat sleep deprivation. Once we start pointing out industries that profit off the collective exhaustion caused by overwork, it's hard to stop. But if our transition to a shorter work week continues to evolve without a social framework behind it, it will continue to reproduce the same inequalities we have seen during this crisis. More, a student with a financially stable family that housed and fed her during the crisis was able to take this time to intensively learn a new skill. Others with the same interests, more needs, and perhaps more knowledge didn't have that opportunity. Cheyenne Sundance, who runs a social justice-oriented urban farm in Toronto named Sundance Harvest, spoke to this issue. Quote, Someone who has the privilege of being able to go to their parents' land can start a farm much, much sooner than someone who lives in a high-rise apartment, she notes. Someone with less income is more likely to live in a small apartment without access to land or space to grow food and might have to wait years to access a plot. The benefits of a shorter work week won't reach those who need it the most, people with lower incomes who are disproportionately black, indigenous, and people of color, unless it is accompanied by social policies that very intentionally include them. For instance, it's important to consider policies that would return land to indigenous people and support traditional agriculture. In order for a shorter work week to create structural change, we have to understand it as neither a panacea nor a reform, but rather a reimagining of the purpose of work and leisure, and a re-envisioning of the role that productivity plays in our lives.
And finally, the Pope. The Pope has a recent encyclical put out called Fratelli Tutti, which is an extensive um, look at and, and thought piece around um, fraternity, around uh, humanity and the connections between people. goes into all kinds of topics related and this pope is the best pope ever um this pope thinks more about the the welfare of humanity than most in the past this pope thinks less of the dogma of christianity now that doesn't mean that everything this Pope does and or says and or supports and believes is even good. But more good has come from this Pope than any Pope I am aware of in history. Here's a very small section of this encyclical. This section is titled Pandemics and Other Calamities in History. A worldwide tragedy like the COVID-19 pandemic momentarily revived the sense that we are a global community, where one person's problems are the problems of all. Once more, we realize that no one is saved alone. We can only be saved together. As I said in those days, quote, the storm has exposed our vulnerability and uncovered those false and superfluous certainties around which we constructed our daily schedules, our projects, our habits and priorities. Amid this storm, the facade of those stereotypes with which we camouflaged our egos, always worrying about appearances, has fallen away, revealing once more the inelocutable and blessed awareness that we are part of one another that we are brothers and sisters of one another. The world was relentlessly moving towards an economy that, thanks to technological progress, sought to reduce human costs. There were those who would have had us believe that freedom of the market was sufficient to keep everything secure. Yet the brutal and unforeseen blow of this uncontrolled pandemic forced us to recover our concern for human beings for everyone rather than for the benefit of a few. Today we can recognize that we fed ourselves on dreams of splendor and grandeur and ended up consuming distraction, insularity, and solitude. We gorged ourselves on networking and lost the taste of fraternity. We looked for quick and safe results, only to find ourselves overwhelmed by impatience and anxiety. Prisoners of a virtual reality, we lost the taste and flavor of the truly real. The pain, uncertainty, and fear and the realization of our own limitations brought on by the pandemic have only made it all the more urgent that we rethink our styles of life, our relationships, the organization of our societies, and above all, the meaning of our existence. If everything is connected, it is hard to imagine that this global disaster is unrelated 
to our way of approaching reality. Our claim to be absolute masters of our own lives and of all that exists. I do not want to speak of divine retribution, nor would it be sufficient to say that the harm we do to nature is itself the punishment for our offenses. The world is itself crying out in rebellion. We are reminded of the well-known verse of the poet Virgil that evokes the tears of things, the misfortunes of life and history. All too quickly, however, we forget the lessons of history, the teacher of life. Once this health crisis passes, our worst response would be to plunge even more deeply into feverish consumerism and new forms of egotistic self-preservation. God willing, after all this, we will think no longer in terms of them and those, but only us. If only this may prove not to be just another tragedy of history from which we learned nothing. If only we might keep in mind all these elderly persons who died for lack of respirators, partly as a result of the dismantling year after year of healthcare systems. If only this immense sorrow may not prove useless, but enable us to take a step forwards towards a new style of life. If only we might rediscover once for all that we need one another, and that in this way our human family can experience a rebirth with all its faces, all its hands, and all its voices beyond the walls that we have erected. And that'll wrap up this episode of Howie 2020. Remember, you can uh, check out all the back episodes of Howie 2020 and the back episodes of Bernie 2020 at bernie-2020.com. You can also listen to this podcast and all my podcasts playing 24-7 at movingtrainradio.com. Here is Will Hoge with the track Gilded Walls from the album My American Dream. Thanks for listening.
Inside your gilded walls 